Well, this morning, we conclude our series of preaching through Paul's epistle to the Galatian church. So take up your copy of the Word, if you have it with you, and follow along with me as we now turn our attention to the sixth chapter of Galatians, beginning at verse 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our merciful and most glorious Father in heaven, you are the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. You are the one who called a shepherd boy named David and appointed him to be king over your people. And you are the heavenly Father who gave his only begotten Son to live, to die, and be raised on the third day that your people may be saved. And you have given your Holy Spirit to indwell your people, to bring both comfort and understanding, to sanctify and save. And we are humbled at such high knowledge. We cannot fully comprehend the manifold wisdom of our God, but we are thankful. And we bring before you our thanksgiving for your word and for the holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit to write your word. As we come now to the end of this epistle to the Galatian churches, we pray for your spirit to empower your word in your people and teach us. Teach us that we may grow in grace thereby and and see ever more clearly the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray and ask these things in his powerful and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. As we come at last to the conclusion of this epistle, this letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the Galatian churches, we acknowledge that this is a very important epistle. Paul has been in battle mode here with the heretical beliefs of the false teachers. Those who claimed that the Gentiles had to not only believe in Jesus Christ, but also be circumcised. 
right out the gate. Paul calls this belief that you believe in something in addition to the gospel which he had delivered a false gospel. And he warned the Galatians that anyone, anyone, man or angel, who preached a gospel other than the one they heard from Paul and the apostles would be accursed. Paul, in fact, repeated this anathema twice, did he not? Throughout his epistle, Paul sets forth the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The obedience, the suffering, and resurrection of Christ saves us. Our faith is not introspective, but it's extrospective. We, we look to the work of another, not a work that we do ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. At the same time, Christ's work continues, and it constitutes the dawning of a new creation and a new kingdom. The failed kingdom of Adam, now under the control of Satan, sin and death, is coming to nothing. And in the kingdom of Christ is with us. It has now dawned. Christ's kingdom is in total antithesis to the failed kingdom of Adam. It is marked by righteousness and holiness. Put simply, the outpouring of the Spirit produces righteous fruit, Paul has also shown how this fruit should manifest in the life of the church and in individual believers. Because Christ has poured out the Spirit upon us, we, the church, are to be marked by humility. We are to be about the business of gently restoring the repentant sinner. We should see the financial needs of individual believers and meet them. We are to take care of those who instruct us, the one who preaches and teaches the word, and we are to continue steadfastly in doing good. And we should love all people, but especially the household of faith, the church. Although Paul's letter to the Galatian churches is relatively short, it is nevertheless pregnant with incisive truth and application. And before Paul closes his letter, he has several more things to say. He ends this letter with emphasis. One might even think that Paul is just saying farewell. Far from it, however, Paul is essentially summing up the content of this whole letter in just a few verses and brings it with a sense of urgency. At the beginning of this section of the text, Paul concludes his letter in a manner that was common for him to do so. He took the pen the scribe was writing with and, and wrote with large letters to emphasize the importance of this point. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Then he goes on to state two of the chief motivating factors for the false teachers that they have in their midst. He writes, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer the persecution of the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. 
but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul points out that the first motivating factor here behind the false teachers was the desire to avoid persecution. The majority of first century Jews saw Christianity as an aberration, a sort of sect of Judaism. Like the pre-converted Paul that we read about, they persecuted the church for worshiping what they thought was a false messiah and encouraging the Gentiles who converted to forsake Israel's law and specifically circumcision. The false teachers, therefore, were encouraging the Gentiles to be circumcised, not only because they still believed it was necessary, but they thought this would also spare them from persecution. They could point to the Gentile converts and say, see, they're keeping the law. They submit to circumcision. But secondly, they were, they were prone to boasting like many of us, perhaps like many pastors in our own day. Some pastors will boast, not in Christ, but in how big their churches are and how many people attend. We foster this type of mentality because we take far too many of our cues from the world around us rather than from the words of Scripture. After all, how does, how does the world measure success? Bigger is always better. Therefore, a megachurch pastor that preaches to thousands each Lord's Day is better than a minister who preaches to a mere handful of the faithful. And as an aside, we should pray for those faithful pastors who have a faithful small flock who come and gather to worship the Lord each and every week. But what some folks fail to see is that the scriptures do not measure success in terms of numbers, but in terms of fidelity to God's call to preach the gospel. And this is the point in his criticism of the false teachers. In Paul's day, the false teachers were boasting of their success with Gentile converts. They wanted people to see how many Gentiles they had been able to convince to submit to circumcision. Paul had already identified and established these points in his epistle, but Paul has not yet played his final hand. He's not run out of steam yet, and he has not landed the final apostolic blow. To see Paul's first blow, we must note the contrast that he has established in his letter. The false teachers wanted to have Gentiles circumcised, yes, and as a result, they were marked by boasting, glorying, Boasting in their own accomplishments, by contrast, Paul had unique marks of his own. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, he writes. Paul was undoubtedly a scarred man, marked by scars from all of the lashes that he received and his near-fatal stoning and his multiple shipwrecks. Paul calls these scars the marks of Jesus. They were the marks that he bore as a result of being united to Christ. They were the shared sufferings of Christ. These were the marks by which Paul wanted to be associated and known and not by circumcision. He didn't want to be marked by the now abrogated ceremonial law, but by Christ alone. This is why Paul writes in verse 15, For in Christ Jesus 
Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Paul explains that circumcision is of no use, but only new creation. Paul isn't saying here that Christianity is some sort of fresh start or a do-over. No, it is much more profound than that. And so he calls to mind the ancient promises about the new heavens and earth from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 65, 17, we read, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Indeed, in Christ, God has begun to create the new heavens and earth. Paul is saying, in effect, you false teachers and your followers are marked by the old creation. I, Paul, on the other hand, only want to be marked by Christ. Mine are the marks of the new creation. Self-congratulatory boasting marks you. I only want to boast in the cross of Christ. Only Christ brings the promises of the new heavens and earth through his cross of reconciliation, through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of the power of the age to come, that is, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul comes in with his second blow. And to understand its significance, we need to take a step back again into the Old Testament, once again looking to the book of Isaiah chapter 54. At that time, Israel was in exile for their sin. In his judgment, God removes Israel from the promised land, but this was not the last word on the matter. God promised, beginning at verse 8, through the prophet Isaiah, that the exile would end. God would return his people once again to the promised land. We read, With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you, nor rebuke you. Isaiah employs here new creation language. The prophet describes their return from exile like the receding Noahic floodwaters, which was a recreation or a renewing of the creation. Within the greater context of this conclusion then in the letter to the Galatians, Paul has just said that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters, but only a new creation counts for something. And Isaiah, as we read in Isaiah, continuing at verse 10 from chapter 54, he describes what God will do for his Israel. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. The Lord says to the prophet to Isaiah that he will give them his mercy and his peace. So turning back now to verses 15 and 16 of Galatians, we read again, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. 
we must remember that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And as we read through this, let's not rush through it too fast. Take note of Paul's language here. As he was, as this was being read in the church, this would be absolutely shocking language, shocking words to both the Jew and to the Gentiles who would hear it. Circumcised or not, if anyone is in Christ, then he belongs to who? To Israel. To Israel. The one who looks to Christ by faith is the Israel of God. Paul applies this title to uncircumcised Gentiles, which any ordinary Jew would think applied exclusively to circumcised Jews. So then the false teachers who were trying so hard to protect their identity as Israel get this bomb dropped on them from left field, to continue to mix metaphors. Paul proclaimed the truth that regardless of their efforts, only those who belong to Christ are properly called Israel. Paul earlier made this point in chapter 3, if you recall, when he wrote, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Paul's rebuttal here strikes at the very heart of the Judaizers' argument as he, began, as he brings the truth of God's word from Isaiah, Israel's prophet, to bear. Dear Christians, Brothers and sisters of Heritage Church, we need to meditate upon our identity as the Israel of God. We were afar off, aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, strangers, but now we have been brought near and adopted as sons of God. We are Israel. This informs our understanding of the whole of Scripture. A failure to grasp this will lead into doctrinal divisions within the church. And we remember who broke down the wall of separation. It was Jesus Christ. Christ poured out his Holy Spirit upon us and raised us up from death to life and replaced our hearts of stone with those of flesh. He gave us eyes to see and ears to hear and engrafted us into Israel. Indeed, as Christ is the true Israel of God, then those who look to Christ by faith are united to him and become the Israel of God. We now share in all, all of the blessings promised to Israel because of Christ. Indeed, we are new creatures through Christ. If these things are true, then what does it say about the one in whom we are to boast, to glory? Do we boast in ourselves? While boasting in the circumcision of our flesh may no longer be a problem in the modern-day church, at the same time, we have found other idols about which to boast, other reasons to put ourselves first. It is the world which, which boasts about itself. At every turn, the world creates a reason and finds a reason to put itself first. And oftentimes, we find such thinking influencing the conduct of the church. 
The self-infatuated Instagram look-at-me culture has infiltrated the church from the pulpit to the pew. When the church becomes about what we want, about boasting in anything about ourselves, our power, our niceness, our humility, or whatever, it ceases to be about the boasting, the glorying in what Christ has done. The church cannot be primarily about us or focused on us or designed by us or created by us even when we do good things it's not about us one commentator brings up an illustration from a 1932 movie entitled the western code in which one of the characters speaks for the first time this phrase which most of you have probably heard this town ain't big enough for both of us have you heard that? We, we, it's almost become an idiom today. But this little phrase is saying, this, this is a truth that holds for the church, does it not? Our God is a jealous God. We either give him the sole place of honor and boast only in him, or we have no part in him. And so in verse 14, Paul is clear. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross of Christ is the all-sufficient ground for the salvation of sinners. It is sturdy enough to support the whole weight of our guilt, all by itself. Therefore, to boast in the cross properly at all is to boast in the cross alone. Glorying in the cross means more than simply believing that Jesus died for your sins. It also means living a crucified life. There's a threefold aspect to the crucifixion being revealed here. The first and simplest aspect is that the cross is the place where Christ died for our sins. Second, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are personally joined to him and to everything he has ever done for our salvation. This is our union with Christ. Christ is in the Christian, and the Christian is in Christ. Therefore, being united to Christ in this way, we, we also, it also includes being united to him in his death. And third, since we were crucified with Christ and in Christ, when Christ died on the cross, we were crucified to the world, and the world was crucified to us. In reality, therefore, we see this threefold picture, the crucified Christ, the crucified Christian, and the crucified world. The world here refers to all the godless values and hopeless pleasures of the present age. It is unredeemed humanity dominated by sin. It is the world apart from God, the mindset of the self seeking its own desire. But the cross strikes a death blow to all such worldliness. As Christians, we no longer think the way the world thinks or talk the way the world talks or behave the way the world behaves, 
or perhaps I should say, misbehaves. We no longer take comfort in the comforts the world has to offer. We no longer value what the world values. We no longer care what the world thinks at all because we have been crucified to the world. What does mean the world to us now is the cross. And as Christians, we're able to say with genuine hearts, you can take the whole world away from us, along with all of its comforts and delights, as long as you leave us Jesus. Can we say that? Have our desires been changed such that we are different and distinct from the world? If Christ is in you and the Holy Spirit is active and at work in you, this is going on in your heart, and you should delight in it and not resist it. Being crucified to the world is another way to describe what Paul was talking about back at the end of chapter 5. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. Paul told the Galatian churches, and he tells us, to crucify the flesh, to mortify it, to put it to death. Now he tells us that the world needs to join our flesh up there on the cross. Whether the sinful nature is called the flesh or the world, the point is the same. Our sins need to be nailed to the cross and left there to die. In both of those verses, Galatians 5, 24, and here in chapter 6, verse 14, the word crucified occurs in the perfect tense, which is used for a past event that has a present consequence. And this is precisely what the cross is, a past event with a most profound present consequence. Our sinful past event is that the world is gradually losing its hold on us. Now we are dead to the world along with all of its temptations, but alive to God by his grace. The cross really did change the world. It was revolutionary. In the proper sense of the word, it was revolutionary. It turned things upside down. Now we live in a whole new world on this side of the cross, a world in which neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Once we come to the cross for salvation, circumcision, and all of our good deeds and good works become irrelevant, for it has nothing to do with our salvation. Irrelevant insofar as our new birth, our new life in Christ. I've already noted that it is surprising to hear Paul say that circumcision didn't matter. He said it once before in chapter 5, for in Christ... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith, working through love. Nevertheless, it is surprising to hear him say it because the whole reason for his writing to the Galatians in the first place was that circumcision did matter. However, circumcision mattered to Paul only because it mattered to the Judaizers who were making it a matter of salvation. In and of itself, however, circumcision means nothing. If we are in Christ, circumcision can do nothing to improve your standing before God. And people, when I say circumcision, are you substituting all of those good works that you glory in? Are you thinking about how clean you are before 
God and, and before the other Christians? And that smile that you wear every morning to church, are you, are you placing any hope in that? No. Place your hope in Christ and in the cross of Christ. And there is a proper place to bring your boast. What does count is this new creation. What does count is this inward transformation by which the Holy Spirit turns a sinner into a whole new person. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, Paul later told the Corinthians, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, behold, all things have become new. Anyone who is born again by God's Spirit receives a whole new life, a whole new spiritual life. He or she becomes a brand new Christian. And the outward sign and seal of this fundamental transformation is baptism. That which we witnessed administered this morning to a covenant child. And that in which the Holy Spirit works in a most mysterious way. The theological term for this inward transformation is regeneration. In regeneration, the Holy Spirit makes the believer a new creature in Christ. But regeneration is only the beginning. It is only the beginning. As one theologian said, the new creation involves a whole, the whole process of conversion. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit leading to the repentance, leading to repentance and faith. The daily process of mortification and vivification. Continual growth and holiness leading to eventual conformity to the image of Christ. The new creation implies a new nature with a new system of desires, affections, and habits, all wrought through the supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, end quote. As far as salvation is concerned, the only thing that matters is whether this change has taken or is taking place. It matters not whether a person is circumcised, a circumcised Jew, or an uncircumcised Gentile. What matters is whether or not a person is a regenerated Christian, a new creature in Christ. Anyone who has not yet known this spiritual transformation should ask God to change him, to change her from the inside out. But someone may say, not yet known, but I grew up in a Christian home and don't remember a day when I didn't love Jesus. How can I know this spiritual transformation? How will Bree know this spiritual transformation, Lord willing? Thanks be to God. That person just described a most beautiful transforming work of God in their lives before they even remembered. Everyone... Everyone who is a new creation receives this blessing. Hear these words. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Verse 16. This benediction grants peace and mercy. Peace between the Jew and Gentile and mercy from God for sinners. But please notice that this blessing is conditional. Peace and mercy are only for those who walk according to this rule. A rule is a norm or a principle. In this case, 
what Paul means by rule is salvation through the cross alone. For the Judaizers, circumcision was the norm. It was the standard for determining whether the people were inside or outside the family of God. But circumcision means nothing to those who are part of the new creation. The Christian standard is the cross of Christ. The principle that determines whether one is inside or outside the family of God is faith in Christ crucified. And so we don't pass this phrase upon the Israel of God too quickly. It has significant implications for our biblical understanding. The blessings of peace and mercy come from a, from a traditional Jewish blessing, benediction. However, here Paul uses it to refer not merely to Jews, but to all true children of Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile. It is a way of saying that the church is the new Israel. There is continuity between the old covenant and the new creation. Continuity between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament church. The promises of God that he made to Israel are fulfilled in the true spiritual Israel, which is the church of Jesus Christ. God has one people. God has one people, not two people, not two plans of salvation. One people in Christ, and what unites them is the cross of Christ. And we share a common boast. We share a common glorying in the cross, and it is the cross alone, not with any of our good works attached to it. The Apostle Paul was a member of God's true Israel, and he had battle scars to prove it, did he not? The last thing he said to the Galatians, and it strikes us almost as an afterthought, was in verse 17, where he writes, From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. This statement was partly a warning to Paul's old enemy, the Ju enemies, the Judaizers. They had followed him all the way from Jerusalem to in interfere with his gospel, which is the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith, faith alone, and Christ alone. The apostle, wielding his God-given authority then, warned his opponents not to trouble him anymore with this statement. This statement is a warning also to every Christian, for it shows us what kind of treatment we can expect when we glory in the cross of Christ. Sooner or later, every Christian who glories in the cross will face opposition. Some will even bear on their bodies the marks of Jesus. And just as an aside that we might not fall into error, the Greek word here for the marks is stigmata, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It does not mean, as some have wrongly supposed, that Christians can receive exactly the same wounds that Christ received on the cross. You may have heard that, for example, it is sometimes asserted that blood dripped from the hands, feet, and side of Francis of Assisi during his last years of life. But not only is this way of interpreting the marks of Jesus historically inaccurate, but it is also biblically 
inaccurate. What Paul means by stigmata were the various wounds that he received for the cause of Christ. By this point in his ministry, the apostle had literally taken a beating. Among other things, he had been stoned and left for dead in Lystra, one of the cities in Galatia. And Paul's sufferings had left their mark on him. And if we ask why Paul was such a marked man, the answer is that people were offended by his preaching the cross. As he mentioned back in chapter 5, verse 11, he was persecuted for boasting in the cross rather than boasting in circumcision. As far as the Judaizers were concerned, the badge of true religion was the mark made by circumcision. But the apostle Paul had a different insignia, one that came from glorying in the cross and not in himself. He was bruised and beaten for boasting in the cross. His scars were a badge of his faith in Jesus Christ. In the Greek world, the word stigmata was also sometimes used to refer to the branding of a slave. Such usage was, would be appropriate in Paul's case for this, his scars marked him as a servant of his God. But also Calvin draws yet a different comparison after describing all the imprisonment, chains, scourgings, blows, stonings, and every kind of ill treatment which Paul had suffered for the testimony of the gospel, Calvin said, For even as earthly warfare has its decorations with which generals honor the bravery of a soldier, so Christ our leader has his own marks of which he makes good use in decorating and honoring some of his followers. These marks, however, are very different from the others. For they have the nature of the cross, and in the sight of the world, they are disgraceful. The marks of Jesus may seem disgraceful to the world, but they are precious in the sight of our God. They are so precious, in fact, that on occasion, Paul prayed for the privilege of becoming so united to Christ that he would come to share in his sufferings, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, he writes to the Philippians. This should be the prayer of every Christian. But sharing in Christ's sufferings is especially important for her ministers. As one English evangelist and pastor wrote, <clears throat> it is the crucified man that can preach the cross. Said Thomas, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, I will not believe. What Thomas said of Christ, the world is saying about the church. And the world is also saying to every preacher, unless I see in your hands the print of the nails, I will not believe. It is true. It is the man who has died with Christ that can preach the cross of Christ. Boasting in the cross is not just for preachers, however, and therefore suffering is not just for preachers. Every Christian who has died with Christ must live for his cross. It would be difficult to find an expression of the crucified life stated more eloquently than the words of this great hymn by Isaac Watts, which we will sing shortly. 
and it is based on these closing verses of Galatians 6. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love mingled down, did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown. In this verse, in this verse here that I'm about to read is missing from our printed hymn. His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. To this great statement of the gospel, and this call to the crucified life, we can only add the apostles' own benediction to the Galatians. And it really is a prayer for God's blessing on everyone who trusts in the gospel, the gospel of free grace, and who seeks to be justified by faith alone and Christ alone. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we offer our humble thanksgiving for the cross of Christ. Your word tells us that worldly boasting is excluded, and may it be so. May it be among your people gathered here this morning. O Lord, cause the the righteous to rejoice in you. For praise from the upright is beautiful. May our boasting be a glorying only in the cross of Christ. And this is our prayer. Our prayer which we ask in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.